Thank you, Renee. And I'd like to invite uh, any elementary-aged uh, kids, grades one through five, who would like to come forward, to come forward at this time. So any children who would like to come up can. I'm going to have you gather right over here, actually, with me around uh, this table. So any of you who would like to come. I was, when I first started here, I was doing children's messages about once a month. That was my goal. I'll have you come around kind of over by me so that people can still see the tower out in the sanctuary. So let's come kind of around this way and around this way, and let's make sure that the shortest can be in the front so that they can see. Uh, so I intended to do children's messages like this and have you all come forward about once a month, and, uh, and then honestly, uh, because I don't have the best memory, even at the tender age of 34, uh, I forgot. And so I haven't done one of these in quite a while, but I'm going forward going to try to do this more regularly and have you all up here uh, at least once a month. Does that sound good? Okay. So, as, does anyone know what this is? It's a Jenga tower, that's right. Uh, do any of you play Jenga with your families and stuff? Like, almost all of you? A, a little bit? <laughs> you get like halfway through the game and you stop? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I was your age, this was one of my favorite games. Uh, my family had kind of a tradition that after church on Sunday uh, night, we would come home, we'd make a bunch of popcorn, and we'd play games together. Uh, Trouble and different games like that, but Jenga was one of those games, and this was one of my favorite games to play. Uh, so you all said that you play, you know how to play. Does one of you want to try to take one of these blocks? All right, you were the first one I saw. Good job. Pop that right out, and then what do you do with it? That's perfect. You put it on top, exactly. Now, I used to have a strategy for that, okay? A lot of people, yeah, you would, you would kind of take a block, the easiest one that you could, but my favorite strategy was actually to go down to the bottom and see if I could get one of the blocks out from the bottom. Does anyone know why I would want to do that? Yeah. Why? To make it more unstable, exactly. Because what, before somebody else goes, namely my sister. <laughs> that's, that's who I always wanted to be right after me, after I took that block out of the bottom. I would always try to take one block, and then I would actually try to take the other block from the other side so that it was just resting on one block. Does anyone want to try to get this other one right here? All right, I saw you first. You can try and slip that out. Ooh, good job. Perfect. So for those of you who can't see, we now have a Jenga tower resting on just one block on the bottom. What do you think will happen if I try to take that last block? Should we try, should we try it? Can, can you sort of uh, make a little bit of a gap so that people out there can see it, all right? And if you want to step back a little bit so that you don't get as fast as I can, should you? You were right. You were right. Why did it fall down? Because I did it too fast? You think it was just the speed? <laughs> There's a lot of theories for why that fell. I'll give you, I'll give you one that I kind of came up with. It doesn't have a good foundation anymore, right? It's just resting on that one block. So if you take that last block out, the whole tower falls down. Now, the reason why I wanted to play this game with you all was because the same thing is true in our lives as Christians. What do you think is the foundation, the block that's on the bottom that holds up the rest of our lives? God. God? Yeah. 
I'd say specifically our relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the one who makes our relationship with God possible. Let me ask you a question. What do you think happens if we take God or Jesus out from the foundation of our lives? What happens? (laughs) You just went... Yeah, it's like what just happened with that tower. Everything falls apart. It falls down. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. And so that's part of why it's so important for us as people who believe in God and believe in Jesus to keep them at the center of our lives as the foundation that we build everything else on, just like you guys are building it. You want to play again, don't you? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm going to have you go back to your seats. Thank you for coming up and helping me with this. We'll continue to do these sorts of things going forward, and I won't forget again. Obviously, the lesson in our lives is there's so many things that sometimes we try to swap out that foundation of Christ and God for, and uh, the results are less uh, than pretty. And we're going to be talking about one of those things that I think has become an increasing temptation for us to do, uh, to swap out as the foundation of our lives the next 10 weeks. We're going to be talking about faith and politics uh, here, and uh, I'm going to do things a little differently uh, to start this message. Normally what I do is I read the text, and then I spend the rest of the time uh, preaching about the text, but I just feel like this topic, given how hot and how controversial it is, requires a little bit more introduction. I also feel like it requires prayer. So let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thank you for being the foundation of our lives, the one on whom everything else that we think, believe, live according to, it all rests on you. Be the foundation of our lives, Lord. And as we spend time this morning and the next number of weeks exploring what is in many ways a tricky and controversial and difficult topic, Lord, remind us again to rely on you. Give us your Holy Spirit. And help us, even as we might disagree with each other, to still care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We will get to our text in a little bit. It's going to take me a little while, though, to set it up first. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, they say that you should never talk about faith and politics in polite company. I guess that means we're going to be impolite here at Ivan Rest for the next 10 weeks, because uh, like I said, that's what we're going to do. With a one-week break in there, we're going to spend uh, the next 10 weeks talking about exactly that, faith and politics. And I don't know about you, but the collective anxiety in the room just went through the roof. I think I'm going to have to crack a lot of jokes in this sermon series just to keep us from going off the edge. And some of you might ask, okay, why are we doing this, right? Given the potential for anxiety, frustration, and anger, why talk about this? Why do a series or even just one sermon on the topic of faith and politics? Um, Trust me, I've been asking myself that question a lot too. We're all of one minute into the series. I'm still asking myself that question. But truth be told, I do think that this is a good idea. I think it's a good idea to talk about faith and politics Because I think that faith and politics are actually a really important topic. I think it's important to talk about that topic, and I think it's important to talk about that topic here, in church, for four reasons. First, as Christians, the church ought to, it ought to be the place where we form and shape our thinking about important topics, politics included. This is something I used to talk about all the time uh, back at Brookfield. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, I used to work uh, in youth ministry for seven years at a church in Wisconsin. And every now and again, uh, the topic of sex would come up 
in our youth groups, and we would talk about it in youth group. But there would always be one or two parents or, or, or one or two members of the church who would sort of question that and say, why do we need to do that? You know, why, do, why do we need to talk about sex with our kids? Wouldn't it be better if we just didn't talk about that? And my response to that was always, we're better to talk about it. We're better to talk about sex. You see, if we as Christian parents, Christian churches, and Christian leaders don't talk about sex with our young people because it's uncomfortable or it's scary or we don't know what to say, then the fact is that they're going to learn about sex from others who will talk about it with them. The only problem is that there's no guarantee that those other voices are going to come at that topic from a Christian perspective. And the same thing is true of our politics. When we so vehemently argue that our faith and politics should stay separate, that we shouldn't talk about it in church, uh, that we shouldn't touch it from the pulpit or hear about it on Sunday morning, then what we really end up doing is separating our politics from our faith, advocating our discipleship in that area of our lives and discipling ourselves to other voices, often outside of the church, that then instead form and shape our perspective on politics. You see, when we advocate our responsibility for faith formation and discipleship in the Christian community, and we have done that far too many times in recent years on far too many topics, then the fact is that other voices will come in and fill that void. It's just that they might not be Christian voices. And when that's the case, what ultimately ends up happening is that we form our ideas, beliefs, and perspectives according to those voices rather than according to our faith as Christians. And so that's the first reason we need to talk about this. Because as Christians, we are disciples of Jesus. And so our discipleship, including when it comes to our politics, needs to be first and foremost formed and shaped here in his church. That leads to the second reason we need to talk about this. Because contrary to what some people will tell you, politics actually is part of our faith. You see, as Christians, we like to say that our faith is the most important part of our lives, right? Our faith is more important than our interests, our hobbies, and the things that we enjoy. It's more important than our work, our jobs, and our schooling. It's more important than our possessions, our money, and the things we buy and consume. It's even more important than our relationships, our friends, our family members, our romantic relationships, even our marriages, right? Put simply, as Christians, we believe that our faith is the highest and most important part of who we are. It gathers up, includes, and makes sense of all of those other pieces of our lives. In short, there is no part of who we are that doesn't in some way relate to, connect to, or find its significance and meaning in our faith. And that includes our politics. You see, when we say that we need to keep our faith and politics separate, what we're really saying is that there is a part of our lives, a part of our identity, a part of who we are that doesn't connect to our faith. I don't think any of us actually believe that, but that's what we end up saying. That's what we end up conveying. That's the message that we end up sending. When we say, don't talk about this in church, don't talk about it from the pulpit, don't talk about it in a sermon, what we're really saying is hands off my politics. Don't bring the implications of our faith as Christians to bear on them. Don't tell me that I might have to think Christianly about how to engage in politics because I don't want my faith to touch that area of my life. And yet, if our faith really is what we say it is, the most important thing in our lives, then like every single other area of our lives, 
from time to time, we need to talk about how it relates to politics. That brings up the third reason we need to talk about faith and politics, which is that Scripture talks about faith and politics. This, uh, this actually drives me a bit nuts, but as a pastor, I occasionally have people who will say things to me like, you know, the church ought to be a safe space. I come here to be built up, to be filled up, so I can go into the week ahead on a positive note. I don't come here to be frustrated or angry, and so I shouldn't have to hear anything I disagree with or don't like in church. And truth be told, I normally hear that from people after I've preached something that they don't like or disagree with. Uh, so I might be hearing that a bit more in the weeks to come. We'll see. But I firmly disagree with that sentiment. First, I'll just say that many of the people who have said that sort of thing to me over the years are the very same people who roll their eyes at our culture's talk about things like safe spaces and trigger warnings for all the so-called snowflakes in our society. You know, they can't stomach that sort of stuff on college campuses or in the workplace or anywhere else. Why do all these snowflakes need safe spaces, they ask. And the question I want to ask them is, why do you? Because the truth is that when people say the church ought to be a safe space where they never hear anything that they disagree with or don't like, what they're really saying is that the church ought to be just like those safe spaces that they think are ridiculous out in the rest of society. That's a bit ironic, but some of the biggest snowflakes I've met are precisely the people who make fun of and ridicule snowflakes in our broader culture. And by the way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google the term safe space, trigger warning, or snowflake later on today. You'll have enough to, to read. So. The bigger reason I disagree with that idea, though, is because it's simply not how Scripture works. It's not how the Bible works. Maybe I'm reading it wrong, but the Bible sure seems to me like an equal opportunity offender. What I mean by that is that the Bible doesn't only say things that we like or that won't upset us. It says some of that. There's obviously a great deal of peace and comfort in the pages of Scripture. But there's also a lot that challenges us, that pushes us, that causes us to reconsider the things that we think and believe. And that makes sense, right? After all, the Bible is God's word. And we are fallible, broken, sinful human beings. So of course the Bible is going to say things that we don't like from time to time. Of course it's going to push us. Of course it's going to challenge us. Because if it's truly what we say it is, if it's truly the living, breathing word of a holy God, then it has to say things we won't like from time to time, right? Because it's God speaking to a bunch of sinners. Again, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but that's what the Bible has done in my life. I'll be honest, I hold positions and believe things that I wish I didn't have to. I don't want to believe them. Uh, honestly, I wish I could believe something else. My life would be a lot easier if I could, but I don't. I don't always like it, but I believe it anyway. Because the Bible tells me to. And try though I might, I can't get around that. I can't get around it because I believe that Scripture is God's Word. And if it's truly God's Word, then I have to take it seriously, whether or not that is always comfortable or easy for me or not. What that also means, though, is that as a preacher, I need to preach all of that stuff, too. You see, if I'm doing my job as a preacher proclaiming the full counsel of God's Word, then there will be some times when I say things that you don't like. Just rest assured that there are times where I have to say things I don't like either. 
Finally, the fourth reason we need to talk about this, I've been saying this for years, but I have become con uh, increasingly convinced that a good number of North American Christians have defaulted into reading their faith through the lens of their politics rather than their politics through the lens of their faith. They read their faith and the Bible through the lens of their political beliefs, perspectives, and ideologies rather than the other way around. And that's wrong. It's idolatrous, actually. It's idolatrous because it puts God, his word, and what we believe about him second to a political platform, party, or perspective. And again, I've become convinced that far too many North American Christians have done exactly that. In fact, I've become convinced that this is actually one of the biggest discipleship crises we are currently facing in the North American church. And so in a nutshell, that's why we need to talk about this. Those four reasons. That's why we're going to talk about faith and politics, and that's why we're going to do it here in a sermon series for 10 weeks, as difficult or as uncomfortable as that might be. At least it's not a national election year, right? Now, just to put you at ease, a few things this series won't be. First, it won't be a voter's guide. Okay, I'm not going to tell you which policies, platforms, parties, or candidates to support. I might critique some of them, and there is a big difference between critiquing and then telling you who or who not to vote for. But I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, okay? That's not my job. I'm a pastor. I'm not a political scientist. And so if you're worried that I'm going to use this series to tell you who to punch your ballot for, don't. I'm not going to do that. Nor am I going to get super in-depth into specific pieces of legislation or judicial decision-making. Again, that's not my job. I am not a lawyer or a legislator, and so I won't pretend to be. Finally, I'm not going to tell you to be apolitical or just not care about politics. Uh, truth be told, I actually used to lean that way. I used to get so frustrated with how over-politicized some Christians would get that I'd sort of just throw my hands up in the air and say, look, if this is how we're going to engage with politics, then we as Christians should just swear them off. We should just stop and disengage. And while I used to think that was the solution, I don't think it is anymore. I don't think that's the solution because the fact of the matter is that politics are important. Politics are important because they affect policies, and policies affect people. As pastor and author Eugene Cho puts in his appropriately uh, titled book on politics, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, it's a good title, politics matter. They matter because politics inform policies that ultimately impact people. When I read the Bible, it's emphatically clear that people matter to God. While some Christians have chosen to disengage from the political process, remain silent, or retreat to the sidelines, that kind of isolation or retreat from society is not endorsed by Scripture. I believe Christians ought to engage our larger culture, including the many facets and nuances of what we label politics. And I agree. We Christians cannot afford to be politically disengaged. We cannot afford to sit idly by on the sidelines. We cannot afford, as some of our critics deride us, to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. Instead, as Christians, at least Christians living in the modern nation-state we call the United States of America, we have to be political. It's part of who we are, and it's part of our faith. It's just that we have to be political in a Christian or Christ-like way. And so that's what this series is about. Over the next 10 weeks, I want us to talk about, think about, and hopefully come to some conclusions about how we can engage and participate in the political process in a Christ-like or Christ-centered way. After all, 
as I hope to make clear, we are, all of us, dual citizens. We are citizens of our earthly kingdoms, and for many of us, that earthly kingdom is the United States of America, but we are also, first and foremost, actually, citizens, really subjects of God's kingdom. And put simply, as believers, that's the kingdom, the citizenship, and the loyalty that makes up the primary, most important part of our identity. And as we begin talking and thinking about that together this morning, let's read our text. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. That's on page 11 in your pew Bibles if you're following along there. Genesis 16, verses 1 through 4. And this is what the text says. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with her, and she conceived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This probably seems like an odd text to start this series, right? I mean, after all, this passage isn't really about politics. It's not really about any of the things we typically associate with politics either. So why start here? Well, I wanted to start here because while not explicitly about politics, I do think that this text gives us a good example of what not to do, what not to be like and how not to handle certain aspects of our life and our faith, politics included. Just for context, some of you probably already know this, but the background to this text is a promise God made to the husband here, Abram, first in Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 15. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abram and he says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That serves as Abram's call and also the beginning of his relationship with God. It also serves as the first promise that God makes to Abram about having offspring. Uh, I don't have time this morning to go into how we know this, but I'll suffice it to say that Abram was probably around 75 years old uh, when this text takes place in Genesis 12. And yet, even at that age, he and his wife Sarai didn't have any children. In fact, Scripture tells us that they couldn't have any children. It's because Sarai, Abram's wife, couldn't conceive. And yet, God tells Abram that he will make him into a great nation here. And then God actually doubles down on that promise just a few chapters later in Genesis 15. There the Lord comes to Abram in a vision and says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. It's a remarkable promise, especially to a septuagenarian with no children and a barren wife. 
And while it seems like Abram and Sarai believed God, at least initially, it also seems like they got tired of waiting. And that's where our text for this morning comes in. Because tired of waiting on God's timeline and his way of doing things, Abram and Sarai decide to take matters into their own hands here. If God won't provide for them the way that he said he would, perhaps they can find a way to do it themselves. Uh, Truth be told, Abram and Sarai actually have a history of doing that. Uh, For instance, in the second half of chapter 12, after his call from God, Abram goes down to Egypt to escape a famine. While he's there, though, he gets a bit nervous. Knowing that Sarai is a beautiful woman, uh, Abram becomes afraid that the Egyptians might try to kill him in order to take her from him. And so he tells Sarai to pretend to be his sister rather than his wife so that no harm will come to him. I'll suffice it to say that when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and his officials find out after Pharaoh has already tried to take Sarah to be his wife, they're a little less than pleased with Abram. The whole episode, though, including the later one in chapter uh, 20 of Genesis, where Abram and Sarah actually do the exact same thing again, demonstrates a profound lack of trust in God. It also demonstrates an overconfidence in our own abilities as human beings to bring about God's plans and purposes our way. The simple fact is that taking matters into our own hands and trying to bring about God's will by our own efforts as human beings rarely, if ever, works. That's something that becomes abundantly clear by the end of Genesis 16 here, as well as in chapter 21 where the rest of the story of Hagar and her son with Abram is told. And yet, even though that never really works, I can't help but think that's what some Christians today are trying to do through their engagement with politics. It's not always the case, but at least sometimes, I think what we're trying to do through our political engagement, like Abram and Sarai, is take matters into our own hands. And the reason we do that, I think, is simple. We do that because we now live in a post-Christian or secular culture and we feel more and more and more like we have to. You see, our culture used to be Christian. It used to be what cultural commentators will call a Christianized culture. It used to be a culture that was dominated, organized, and centered around the historic Christian faith. We even had a term for it, Christendom, we called it, right? It was a culture where a majority of people believed the Christian faith, thought according to a Christian worldview, and lived according to a Christian moral ethical framework. But for the last 500 years or so, that's been changing. I don't have time this morning to go into all the reasons why. If you're interested, I'd recommend uh, the podcast This Cultural Moment by John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers. Uh, Sayers' books, The Road Trip That Changed the World, uh, Reappearing Church, and A Non-Anxious Presence are also really helpful uh, resources, as is uh, Richard Beck's book, Hunting Magic Eels. Uh, And if you'd really like to nerd out about all this, come talk to me after the service. I've got about 10 more recommendations too. Okay? The point, though, is that things have changed. In fact, I don't even probably need to tell you that our culture has changed. We can feel it. We can feel that it's changed. As Christians, we can feel that this culture is different. We can feel that it's no longer Christianized. We can feel that it's no longer a culture where a majority of people believe like us, think like us, or live like us. We can feel that our culture has shifted. I'll just say, by the way, that while that used to scare me, it doesn't anymore. Because one of the things that all those resources I just highlighted are really good at pointing out 
is the tremendous opportunity we have evangelistically and missionally in this culture. The fields are ripe for the harvest. I do think it remains to be seen whether or not we actually take advantage of those opportunities evangelistically and missionally, but at least they're there. For our purposes this morning, what we need to understand is that a post-Christian or secular culture is a culture where fewer and fewer and fewer people believe in the transcendent, the divine, or anything that looks or feels like God. To put it another way, a secular or post-Christian culture is a culture where it's easier to disbelieve in God than believe in him. It's easier to disbelieve in God than believe in him. And even if people do still believe in God, they don't believe he makes that much of a difference. You know, he's sort of just like this sky fairy who's up there, and whenever we kind of feel like we need to talk to him, then we throw up sort of a Hail Mary, and that's it. That's what it means to be post-Christian. That's what it means to be secular. It means to be post or after the Christian faith. It means to disbelieve or at the very least minimize the existence or reality of God. The problem, though, is that we can't live like that. We're not designed that way. I referenced him earlier, but I like how Mark Sayers puts this. He says that as human beings, we are meaning-making machines. Human beings are meaning-making machines. What he means by that is that as human beings, we have to find some sense of transcendence, significance, meaning, value, purpose. We have to find that in our lives. We have to find it somewhere. We can't live without that. We used to find all of that in God. We used to find that sense of transcendence, significance, meaning, and value in the Christian faith. We used to find it in our religious belief. But in a culture and context that no longer believes in God, we can't find it there anymore. And so, says Sayers, we have to find it someplace else. And so we go looking for it. And while there are a number of options out there for an increasing number of people on all sides of the political spectrum, we are finding that sense of transcendence, significance, meaning, and value in politics. We are witnessing the rise of the political religions, Sayers says. And people now treat politics with the same sense of awe, reverence, and allegiance that they used to reserve only for God. And to be fair, that actually makes sense if you really think about it. I mean, let's just play this out for a second. If God doesn't exist, and that's what many people in our culture today believe, that he doesn't exist, well, then we've got to find some way to have the world we want, right? You see, in the Christian view, according to the Christian perspective, the way things worked when we were a Christian culture, we used to reserve that work for God. The world was progressing towards some end or goal, right? In Scripture, it's the new creation where all of creation is redeemed and restored to the way that God intended it to be. And God was the one doing that work, He was the one moving the world along towards the new creation, redeeming and restoring it along the way and ultimately bringing it towards the ends that he intended for it. We got to participate in that process with him, but he was the one who was driving it forward. But our culture doesn't believe any of that anymore. We might still believe in some idea or understanding of God, but we don't believe in a Christian conception of God anymore. And so we don't believe that God is the one out there doing that work, that he's moving the world along, redeeming and renewing it. And yet as a culture, we do still believe that that needs to happen. 
We do still believe the world is heading somewhere. We believe that it's progressing towards some intended purpose or goal. And so the question becomes, how do we get there? How do we get to the world that we want? If God no longer exists, then what's going to get us there? And for many people, increasingly, the answer is becoming politics. That's how we'll get the world we want. That's how we'll achieve our purposes. That's how we'll bring about God's kingdom, whether we believe in God or his kingdom or not. The problem, though, is that it's not just secular, post-Christian, non-believers out there in the broader culture who are doing that. It's Christians, too. You see, this secular, post-Christian culture has had an effect on us. This is the water that we swim in, and because it's the water we swim in, it started to seep into us. You see, while we might still believe in God and the Christian faith and all the stuff that our culture used to believe in but doesn't anymore, more and more we're acting like we don't. We're acting like we don't believe in that stuff because we are acting like our culture, which doesn't believe it. And one of those areas where we're acting more and more like our culture is our politics. That's why Christians will say things like, if we can just win the next election, if we can just get the right person in office, if we can just get the school board, the town council, the governor, the legislature, the courts, the White House, Congress, whoever it is back on our side, then it'll all be right. Then it'll all be the way it's supposed to be. Then it'll be the way we want it to be again. You see, like Abram and Sarai, I think we've grown tired in this post-Christian, secular culture of waiting for God to act. We've grown tired of his timeline. We've, We've grown tired of trusting his way of doing things. And so we're trying to take matters into our own hands. We're trying to do it on our terms. We're trying to bring about his kingdom, but our way. There's more we can say about all this. We'll do some of that in the coming weeks. For now, I'll close with this. I'm not saying to be apolitical. Again, I don't believe that. I'm not saying don't care about politics, and I'm not saying either that God can't use our engagement as Christians in the political process. He certainly can and does. I'm simply saying that as Christians, politics is not where we find our sense of transcendence, significance, meaning, value, or purpose. That's increasingly becoming the temptation in North America, and it's a temptation that we need to resist. Because after all, win or lose, triumph or defeat, whichever way the political winds blow, we need to remember as Christians that God is still God. His kingdom still rules over all, and he will ultimately bring his purposes into reality one way or another. At least that's what Abram and Sarai eventually learned. You see, in Genesis 21, after years and years and years of waiting, and after repeatedly trying to take matters into their own hands, God finally gave Abram and Sarai what he promised. He gave them a son. His name was Isaac, and he was the fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made to them. Well, in the same way, God has given us a son. His son, actually. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to us. 
He's one more thing, too. He's our Lord. He's our King. And He is the one who will eventually bring God's purposes to bear on this world. As His people, we need to trust that. We need to trust Him. And we need to trust Him enough not to try and take matters into our own hands. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we kind of marvel at this regularly. For whatever reason, you have chosen to use us as broken and fallible people in your world. You choose to partner with us for your purposes. And yet, Lord, you are still the one driving those purposes. Help us to trust in you. Help us to rely on you. Help us to build the foundation of our lives. Always first and foremost, on you, our Lord, our King, and our God. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.